Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. God bless you. It's good to be with you again. We are diving into a new series of teachings this weekend called How to Be a Better Heretic. If you don't know the word heretic, it's a very old word. And historically, if you go back a few hundred years, a a, a heretic was somebody who taught things that were uh, sufficiently contrary to the core of Christianity, that the the bulk of the church would say, hey, that's not orthodox teaching. That's not what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity. That's not the the core. That's, That's in conflict with our basic doctrines. And we rule that as something that's false. And you go back a few hundred years, people would get kicked out of the church left and right for teaching heretical things. And so we're diving into a new series called How to Be a Better Heretic, and we are going to look at some very ancient teachings that the church marked off as as mistaken that are still alive and well in the church today. Uh, And the reason we're doing that is because if you've been here at the church or if you followed the podcast at reallife.la, you know that a while ago I said the Bible serves two major roles for us. It is a treasure map and it is cautionary tape. It's a treasure map in the sense that it leads us to an abundance of life, to joyful life, to life in Christ. And it is cautionary tape in the sense that there are several places where the Bible says, you might not want to go this way. This isn't going to be healthy. This isn't going to be good for you. And so in talking about heresies of the ancient church and today, we're looking at some of that cautionary tape to see where the church historically marked off and said, hey, you might not want to go this way. This might not be healthy. And as you'll see, some of the places where historically the church has has marked those places off, where they've interpreted the scriptures to say this is a, a wrong teaching, those teachings are still alive and well in the church today. Now, uh, I realize this weekend is Father's Day weekend, and here at Real Life Church, we celebrate Father's Day by cooking like 100 pounds of bacon. The neighborhood reeks of bacon. All the neighbors love us, and uh, and the people are just drawn in like flies to Real Life Church. That's a beautiful image right there, because we cook so much bacon on Father's Day. And people will say, why do you, why do, you do that? What's, what's the point of that? Other than the fact that it's bacon, and you obviously should do that as a moral imperative. But also, there's actually a a kind of a funny, uh, thoughtful, historical, uh, theological reason for that. Because remember, the Jewish people, uh, the the faith group from which Jesus came, had had been uh, told by God there were certain dietary restrictions that they had had from very early on in their existence as a people. And one of them was, you cannot eat pork. You cannot have bacon. And Jesus, as he walked the earth, taught people, it's not what goes into your body that makes it unclean, it's what comes out of it. Uh, It's when you say terrible things, that's what makes you unclean, it's not what you eat. And the Apostle Paul went on to affirm that literally by saying, you can eat whatever you want. The ceremonial laws, which marked off certain kinds of food, have ended. 
There was a big debate in the first century world about whether or not you could eat meat that had been offered to one of the Greek idols or one of the Roman idols. And Paul said, it doesn't make any difference. Those aren't real gods anyway. You can absolutely eat meat that's been offered to an idol as long as you're not worshiping idols yourself. And so the good news was bacon was back on the menu. You could, uh, after the, the New Testament church, uh, bacon was back available to the church again. So we, we eat bacon because it's an amazing thing and to celebrate our theological heritage that we are free in Jesus to eat bacon. Now, as funny and as cute as that might be, there's actually a really profound theological truth in that. When Jesus says, it's not what goes into the body that makes it unclean, it's what comes out of it. He's actually making a statement about what our human nature consists of and how our body relates to our identity. And there is this fascinating historical strain of, of mistaken teachings, of false teachings about the human body that the church has marked off with cautionary tape and said, don't go this way. These teachings are not good for us. And yet you'll see today, some of these mistaken teachings about, about human identity are still alive and well in the church today. And that's what I want us to look at. I want to look at that cautionary tape and where the Bible says, don't go here. And where the church is confirmed, don't go here. And look at how that might shape our world today so that we might live good and healthy lives. Take a minute and pray with me. Jesus, thank you for laying out for us a treasure map and cautionary tape. Thank you for calling us to follow in your footsteps, to live good and healthy and loving lives. Thank you that you came to promise abundant life to us. Now teach us the ways that we should go and the ways that we should not go, that we might live well and right. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, there, there is this, this historical train of, of thinking about what a human being is and, and how the body the physical body relates to our identity. And you might think I, that's kind of interesting, but I don't care that much. It absolutely is shaping our world today. And I'll show you how, but let's start at the beginning. Let's go back to the book of Genesis and look at what it says about our nature and the way we, we are created. This is in Genesis chapter two, part of the creation story at verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet entered on the earth, had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. God chose for us to be physical beings, right? God's breath in the clay. God chose for us to be physical beings, and Genesis 1, he called it very good. God made us to be physical, uh, and, and the, the embarrassment that we feel over our bodies, the self-consciousness that we feel over our bodies, that actually came after the fall. The first thing that Adam and Eve do after they've eaten the forbidden fruit is to make clothes and to hide themselves. That's when they become ashamed of their bodies. 
Now, the, the ancient Greeks uh, began to speculate about what life is all about. A philosophy emerged in a, in a real way in ancient Greece. And they began to ask, what is the world? What is the universe? And what are we within it? What are human beings? And some of the ancient Greeks said, we seem to be this ghost in a machine. We're this soul or this spirit inside a physical body. And some of them said, the physical body is the weaker part of humanity. And the soul, or we'd say the mind, is the stronger part. In fact, ancient Greek philosophers said that the, the spirit is tied to the, uh, the foundational principles of the universe, the ordering principles of the universe, what they called the logos. The, the spirit is tied to the things that are most true. And the body, physical things, are the source of chaos in the world. They're the source of death in the world. They're the source of mess and confusion in the world. The, the ultimate goal is for the spirit to be lifted out of the physical world because the physical world is secondary or dirty. And a lot of ancient Greeks taught along those lines. But when Christians came along, they came along following the God who had come to, their, come to the earth as a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And there's this beautiful passage in the Gospel of John where John writes his biography of Jesus' life. And he begins it by saying, it sounds a lot like the creation story in Genesis. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John refers to Jesus as the Word of God. In Genesis, God speaks and everything comes to be. In John's Gospel, God speaks and we see Jesus. Jesus is God speaking on the earth. And John says in that first chapter, the word became flesh. The, the Greek word for the English word word is logos, that, that word that the Greeks were using. The foundational principle that orders everything became flesh. And one of the biggest complaints the Greeks had about Christianity was, how on earth could that be the case? How could God, this great big ordering principle of everything, come and take a human form? The human form is the weaker part of the universe. It's the broken part of the universe. How could a perfect God settle into a human body? How would he even fit in there? You can't have God in a bod. That just doesn't work. But the Christians affirm, in Jesus, the word became flesh. God and man, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, now that set Christianity at odds with the Greco-Roman culture. One of the biggest complaints the Greeks had about the Christians was you, you can't have a God who uh, becomes a, a, a broken, a humble, simple human. Uh, their gods would appear on the earth as human beings, but only in disguise. The Christians taught, no, it's not a disguise. Jesus was completely God and completely human. The, the Jewish people had the same complaint. You can't take God and say he became a human. That's, that's blasphemous. You can't claim that Jesus was God, but that was exactly what the Christians were claiming. John 10, that's what Jesus claims for himself. So the early Christians began to debate the nature of Jesus and what he was and what that means for our humanity. And there arose in the early centuries a strain of teaching that, that was known as doceticism from the Greek verb dokeo, which means to seem. And they taught, the, the docetics taught, Jesus only seemed human. He wasn't really human. It was a pretense. It was a disguise. 
He was really God, like the Greek gods, who just appeared in disguise, walked the earth a little bit, but not really as a human being. Doceticism. He only seemed human. And the early Christians gathered together and had their councils. The bishops, the leaders got together. They read the scriptures, the teachings of the first Christians. And they said, no, that's not right. Jesus was absolutely God, and he was absolutely human. He didn't only seem human. He really was. And that affirmed in, in the Christian faith the idea that these, these physical bodies that we have were made by God, and God called them very good. And not only that, but the Word became flesh and walked on the earth. God walked on the earth as a human being, not in disguise. So the early church rejected doceticism, rejected this heresy, this false teaching, that bodies were bad or second class, and that Jesus only appeared human. But, you know, they didn't totally free Christianity from it. Some of the early Christian uh, writers sounded like they still felt like bodies were second class, like the physical body is not as important as the soul. The body dies, the soul goes to heaven, so it's only a, it's only a vehicle for the soul. And so you get to the Middle Ages, and there were monks in the monasteries in the Middle Ages who, when they had sinful thoughts, would take whips and beat themselves to punish themselves for having bad thoughts. They literally thought, my, my, my sinful desires come from my body. And if I weren't this fleshly thing, I wouldn't have these bad thoughts. And so I beat my body to punish myself for having these bad thoughts. Francis of Assisi in the 13th century, famous monk, lived an amazing, powerful life. If you've never read one of the biographies of Francis, it's totally worth reading. Uh, and his legacy still exists in California. San Francisco is named after St. Francis. But St. Francis referred to his physical body as the ass he rode around on, the beast of burden that carried something more valuable. Right? The soul within him was important. The body was just trash. This, this thought existed throughout the, the history of Christianity, despite the fact that the early Christians had put cautionary tape there and said, no, 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 we were made physical and God called it very good. And the word became flesh. That was God's intention. But this, this strain of thought continued throughout the, the ancient world and into the Middle Ages. When the modern era dawned, a French philosopher named René Descartes began to speculate about the mind and the body. And he said, look, the whole universe is made up of two substances. There's physical things and there's mental things, and that's it. And the physical things and the mental things are actually very different kinds of things. And, and early critics of him said, now, how do they... How do they affect each other, though? Like, because I've, I've got a mind and I've got a body, or I am a mind and I am a body. How, do they, how does the mental shape the physical and the physical shape the mental? Because it definitely happens. My, my, my physical life can change my mental life. If you, if, you take, uh, if you drink alcohol or take substances, your, the physical intake will actually change the status of your mental life. And conversely, your mental life controls your physical life. I think about raising my hand, and look, the darn thing just goes up. My, my mind affects my body and my body affects my mind. How does that work? And if you go into a modern university classroom, either in the philosophy department or in the neuroscience department, this is the cutting edge of thought today. What is the human mind and how is it related to the physical world? Can you create an artificial intelligence out of physical things 
that becomes a mind? Or is it fundamentally something different? This has been a question that's run throughout history. And repeatedly throughout history, philosophers and thinkers have made the body second class. The body is dirty. It's broken. It's limiting. It's distracting. And somehow the mind or the soul is more pure and more holy. The church very early on put cautionary tape around that and said doceticism is wrong. Jesus didn't just seem human, he was human. And we were made physical. And God called it very good. Now, you may hear all that and go, that's only mildly interesting and I'm starting to get bored. Why am I in a history class? That heresy runs throughout church and society today. The ancient docetics taught that because the body is physical, you can do whatever you want with it. You can starve it or you can feed it. It doesn't matter. And some of them did practice strict asceticism where they starved themselves and limited themselves to punish the body for distracting the soul. And other ancient docetics, uh, uh, other ancient uh, uh, heretical thinkers would say, you can do whatever you want with a body. It doesn't matter. It's completely unrelated to the soul. And they would have weird sexual practices in their religious cults. They would have temples with prostitutes in them because your body literally didn't matter at all. You could treat it like a pleasure machine. It didn't matter. Bodies were second class. Now, to me, that sounds a lot like a, mo a modern American view of the body. We, we do view the body as second class. And you can feed it or you can starve it, and it doesn't matter, we're told. You can feed it anything you want. You can live any kind of sexually reckless life you want. You can indulge in any kind of food and consumption you want, no matter how unhealthy. The body is a pleasure machine. It's secondary to your feelings and your emotions. Do whatever it takes to produce as much dopamine as possible, because the body is just there to make you happy. It's secondary to your emotions and your psyche and your, your mind. It, it's all a second-class thing. That, that strain of thought still runs through the church and society today. Or, or if you don't feed it, then you can starve it. If you, if you look in the, the mirror and you don't like what you see, uh, the body that you have is too big or too small or too old or too non-conforming, then you can dress it up or paint it, poke holes in it to hang jewelry from it, do whatever you can to morph the body, to change your body, to make you feel better. The modern movement towards transgenderism is actually a commitment to a kind of ancient Gnosticism, a kind of ancient doceticism that says, the body's really second class. And what matters most is how you feel, what you perceive. And if I can, when I develop a pain in my appendix, if I can surgically go in and change that to make my, my insides feel better, why can't I go through other surgeries to make myself feel better when I look in the mirror? But that's actually a commitment to a, a false perception of the body. And into, into that world, into those ideologies, I want to speak a promise. It comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created humankind in his own image. In his own image, he created them. 
Male and female, he created them. And I want to speak that as a promise to anyone who looks in the mirror and doesn't like what they see. The teachings of the scriptures and the historical teaching of Christianity is that God made you good. God made you physical and called it very good. He did not reject the physical body or make it second class, but rather the word became flesh and walked among us. Jesus was God and man together. And in doing that, he affirmed this physical nature that he gave us. It's not dirty. It's not broken. It's not second class. God made you good and wants to speak into your life. I love what I made in you. I'm proud of you. Dads, on this Father's Day, this is part of why you are so important. You have the power to speak healthy identity into your children. When my daughter, who's now off in college, when she was a little girl, I did everything I could to teach her about Jesus so she would know the God who loved her. And as she grew up through those early years, I affirmed her over and over again. I love you. I'm proud of you. You're smart. You're beautiful. And as she started to come to those later elementary years, I was anticipating what girls go through in their teenage years, and I wanted to prepare her for that. And I remember telling her, honey, sometimes girls go through seasons of life where they don't feel good about themselves, and they don't like what they see in the mirror. And sometimes that makes them do all kinds of unhealthy things. Sometimes they look at themselves in the mirror and they just don't feel pretty. And my daughter, naive as she was in her elementary years, blurted out, I don't get it. Why don't they just ask their papas? Dads, be over generous with the use of phrases like, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're beautiful. You're handsome. You're smart. There is spiritual power in the affirmations of a father. Dads, your voices are so important. Join me in speaking into this world the promise over our children. God created humankind in his own image. In his own image, he created them. 
Male and female, he created them, and he called it very good. And so that we would not go through this life alone, wondering about whether or not we were of any value, the word became flesh and walked among us, full of grace and truth. There's one more place in the Bible where the Bible circles back on the subject of the physical body, just to affirm it one more time. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Paul, the apostle, is uh, writing about uh, heaven, and he's describing what happens after we die and rise again. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35, he says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? In other words, after we die, how how do the dead come back to life? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. You plant a seed in the ground and something much bigger and more beautiful grows. Verse 42, he says, so so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. In other words, the body we have now is going to die. In eternity, we will be raised in an embodied form in a body that will not die. It is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The Bible teaches that we rise from the dead and stand in front of God's throne in some way in an embodied form. But for all the things we've suffered physically in this life, for all the pains that we've gone through in the next life, We receive a body that is a stronger and more beautiful form than the one we have now. What you see in front of you right here is an acorn. But on that day, I will be an oak tree. And so will you. The promise is that our embodied forms are so valuable to God, we will go on in the next life in some form of embodiment because God created the body good. He created it very good in the beginning. He became human and walked among us in the body. And as we go into eternity, we go into an eternal place somehow, once again, embodied. So the promise to we who follow Jesus is that we can begin to live into that reality now. We can begin to live into the fact that the Bible has set up cautionary tape that says, don't think of the body as the second class a burden that you carry around with you that you're waiting to get rid of. Instead, God made you good. God made you very good. He did it on purpose, not by accident. He took on body with us. The word became flesh. And we will go on into eternity as embodied things. Don't listen to the voices of self-consciousness and self-doubt that make you feel bad about yourself and want to change yourself to somehow conform to what you think other people expect. Stop looking at yourself in the mirror and start looking at yourself reflected back in the eyes of Jesus. He says to you, look at what I see when I look at you. I love you. I'm proud of you. I made you very good. Amen.
Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for making us the way you meant to. Thanks for walking this earth with us so that we might see God in the flesh. And thanks for affirming that you have made us good. So Jesus, may your spirit rest on the hearts of all those who struggle when they look at themselves in the mirror. May we instead see ourselves reflected in your eyes. May a, a deep sense of peace and confidence settle on anybody today who's worried. And may we live each day in the promise of your undying love, your pride in your children, and the fact that we are made by you and chosen by you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.